This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Food and Drug Administration recently granted gene therapy developer Regenex Bio orphan drug designation for its experimental gene therapy for CLN2 disease, a form of Batten disease, a rare and deadly condition that progressively robs children of their abilities until they die. The gene therapy is one of 12 clinical programs and 20 partnered programs Regenex Bio is advancing. We spoke to Ken Mills, CEO of Regenex Bio, about CLN2 disease, the company's next-generation gene therapy platform, and why he believes it offers advantages over other AAV gene therapies. Ken, thanks for joining us. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me today. We're going to talk about Regenex Bio, your efforts to develop gene therapies for uh, a number of conditions, uh, including Batten disease, and, and your platform technology. You, you've just been granted orphan drug status by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for your experimental gene therapy into CLN2 disease, which is a form of, of Batten disease. Perhaps we can begin by explaining what CLN2 disease is, how it manifests itself, and how it progresses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are excited to have uh, only recently announced our entry into the development of a treatment for uh, what's called late infantile neuronal steroid lipofuscinosis type 2 or CLN2. Um, it's a neurological disorder that often presents itself um, at a very early age in kids. Um, it's part of a class of diseases that are referred to as lysosomal storage disorders. And I think, um, you know, within the community of uh, rare disease in particular, lysosomal storage diseases are known to people because there are actually, in some cases, treatments for some of these diseases. And uh, the basis of what's causing disease in children with lysosomal storage diseases like CLN2 is that their cells have stopped functioning in a way that they're removing basically things that naturally build up and, and need to be excreted, uh, almost like trash. Um, and when that buildup and uh, lack of removal of trash occurs, it means that cells stop functioning the way that they should naturally. When, when cells stop functioning naturally, it means that uh, the, the cells that form tissue stop functioning, and when tissue stop functioning, we can have all sorts of problems. Um, in the case of CLN2, uh, there are many different sort of manifestations of the disease, but um, 
in particular, uh, there's real significant neurodegeneration. And what that means is, again, at a really early age, kids stop developing. They, they stop developing cognitively. They start to have severe behavioral problems. They start to have psychological problems. And it starts to obviously affect how they function in daily life, uh, their motor skills and their ability to communicate and uh, eat for themselves. And unfortunately and terribly at a really young age, um, it can result in uh, high incidence of, of mortality. Um, so what we're trying to do with RGX181, and we do appreciate the support and recognition from FDA because this is an innovative approach for a new treatment, um, what's causing the disease is a single gene mutation. That means one piece of one, you know, chromosome in, in the body of these kids um, the DNA is, is not designed the way that it should be, how it is naturally in most of us. And what we can do with gene therapy is we actually can create a copy of that gene, that piece of DNA, outside the body, uh, put it into Regenix technology that we call NAV technology, and work to create a treatment that puts it back inside the cells as an extra copy. So now what we've got is kids who have naturally a, a a misfunctioning copy of this gene, we put another copy of that gene into their cells that actually repatriates natural function and can hopefully, uh, you know, when we start testing this, show that it can halt the progression of the disease. If we can do that, then we may be able to stop this neurodegeneration, this, this fall off in cognition, in uh, these issues with behavior, and, and ultimately um, put off significantly uh, hopefully for as long as possible, um, the, the rate of mortality that occurs. And, and that would be very exciting. Um, gene therapy for lysosomal storage diseases is something that uh, we've been focused on uh, almost since we started the company. And uh, the CLN2 program is actually the third program uh, that we've introduced into our pipeline to treat those types of diseases. We've seen the first therapy for CLN2 disease introduced, an enzyme replacement therapy, which is the traditional approach people have taken to treating lysosomal storage disorders, that's delivered directly into the brain. What's the case for a gene therapy in this condition? Yeah, so the the enzyme replacement therapies are exactly as you described. They're basically the, the protein, which is the product of a gene. You know, gene exists in order to be able to translate into a protein. And, and the protein is really kind of the, the actionable part of why a gene exists. Um, so when that um, enzyme is put into the body in kids and it's put into the brain, it can also repatriate function in the cells, but only temporarily, right? Because that protein comes in in a certain amount and it's used by the cells and then eventually it goes away. And so then another dose of protein or enzyme replacement needs to be administered. And with existing therapy, we're talking about repeatedly administering these enzymes through, through infusions into the brain over and over in these kids. What's different about gene therapy is we're going upstream. We're putting the gene in, and if we do it safely and correctly, the gene is there permanently, and the gene is there to be able to create that protein over and over and over. That enzyme and protein, I'll use them synonymously, times that enzyme will then be there hopefully permanently in those kids. They won't need to get anything else put in with a one-time administration. And so that's kind of the uniqueness of gene therapies. 
to we recognize now, and I think there's been great demonstrations with these enzyme replacement therapies that repeat delivery of protein or enzyme to kids can have a significant difference in clinical outcomes. Um, but what we would love to get to is get away from the issues associated with convenience, with compliance. There, there are even, um, you know, kind of other safety concerns that can come up over time with enzyme replacement. Um, having to repeatedly administer things for an entire lifetime obviously creates a, you know, a new risk. With gene therapy, if we can get it in, get it done once, then putatively it can last um, as long as um, you know that child is alive, and and that would be really exciting. It would be a real paradigm shift in terms of uh, the application of treatment and how we address these diseases. How would your gene therapy be delivered? Can it be delivered systemically, or would it be delivered directly into the central nervous system or brain? Yeah, so we've actually explored that significantly as part of our research program. And, you know, I would say what we've tried to focus on is the absolute best way, which means for us the safest way and the easiest way for kids to get access to gene therapy. And so, you know, initially we explored whether or not through a simple intravenous infusion of the gene therapy that, um, you know, animals in this case that we were testing would see benefit. And we saw some benefit. We actually, you know, I would say at, at doses that we potentially could have taken forward showed that CLN2 disease could could be slowed. Um, but what we saw um, when we switched to another route of administration, which was a one-time treatment, not into the bloodstream, but into the, the basically the spinal fluid that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord, is that we could put a dose of gene therapy into that fluid. But the way that we do it is not dissimilar to how other types of drugs and treatments are delivered in, in a whole array of clinical implementations. Um, you know, people are refer, uh, familiar with it as, as intrathecal administration of, of drug, and it can be used for anesthesia, it can be used for cancer treatment, it can be used for pain management. In our case, we're going into that uh, cerebrospinal fluid with this intrathecal approach with the gene therapy. And when we found that we put it there, we got actually a higher potency, a better effect on the disease. We rescued more of the uh, basically symptoms of the animals. They lived longer. And so that's what we decided. We, we established that it was safe. We had decided that we could do it one time and with a reasonable dose that we could basically help uh, preserve more of the function of the disease. That's what we decided to move into uh, our first clinical program for CLN2. What's the clinical path forward? Well, um, where we are right now is we're uh, completing work on what we call our preclinical package. And um, the, the advantage that we have here is um, we're using um, a gene therapy approach in CLN2 that we've actually already implemented in another similar disease, a disease called uh, MPS2 or mucopolysaccharidosis type 2, also known as Hunter syndrome. And we announced uh, actually last month that we've already dosed the first child in a um, in a clinical trial that we have going on for MPS2, which, as I alluded to, is the disease that's a neighbor. It's very similar to CLN2. Uh, in the case of the CLN2 program, we're going to use 
um, basically a lot of things that are, if not exactly the same, very similar to the Hunter program. We're going to use the same manufacturing process. We're going to use the same thing to deliver the gene. We're going to use the same clinical delivery mechanism. Uh, we're probably even going to use some of the same clinical centers where we run the trial. The only thing that's really going to be different is the gene itself, because of course, the gene in CLN2 is not the same gene that's uh, got a an issue for children that have Hunter syndrome. But because we have all this data already in the MPS2 program, we can leverage that with groups like the FDA. We can run a few more important experiments to verify that the safety that we saw already and that we've applied in the um, clinical trial for, CL, uh, for MPS2 works the same as in CLN2. Um, build that package, submit it to FDA, hopefully sometime in 2019, um, we're looking for that data to uh, allow us to start to activate sites and start to consider um, enrolling patients um, sometime in 2019. Why CLN2 disease? This is this is a, a cruel disease in need of a gene therapy, but it's a small population. As a commercial company, how do you think about pursuing a gene therapy for a small condition? What considerations do you make about pursuing or not pursuing a, a particular condition? Yeah, that's a great question, Danny. And I think, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, our interest as a as a company is about gene therapy and sort of, you know, seeking to improve lives through this really unique curative potential. And I think that gene therapy is very new. It's It's, you know, new, not just um, probably to the audience that's listening to us today, but it's also new to, you know, experts in the field, including physicians, physicians that have, you know, trained in diseases like lysosomal storage for years or physicians that are getting trained today. It's it's new to patients. It's, it's new to families. We, we need to walk before we run. And in the case of diseases like CLN2 and Hunter and other programs that we've selected, we've firmly established from preclinical development that these are some of the diseases that show the best response to gene therapy. And I think um, in order to be able to expand the platform of science and available diseases to things that are more than just um, a couple of things we have in our pipeline, we need to establish that this is safe and effective. Um, and things like CLN2, I think, are really great candidates for that. In addition to them having really good profiles for, um, you know, things like known mutations, known genes, um, and the ability to sort of assess the response, um, there's also a high unmet need and therefore a real receptivity to uh, working with companies like Regenix Bio to sort of, um, you know, safely explore these new therapies and, and move as quickly as we can. Um, to be able to get them to as many patients as quickly as possible. You know, for gene therapy right now, you know, our view is that's really where we need to be. That's how we need to be applying this. And, um, you know, our scientists and our, and our clinicians internal to Regenix are working as hard and as fast as possible to make that a reality for some of these initial diseases. But the hope is from a business perspective that the demonstrations that we see in, in some of these diseases like CLN2 and Hunter are quickly going to translate into a better understanding of how to apply these things in either more diseases and or more diseases with larger populations. And that's where I think the great intersection exists between 
um, you know, sort of developing an understanding of the science and the implementation with a longer and sustaining business model. And uh, one thing that's very unique about Regenix Bio is that we actually have access to the platform that enables all of this. Um, it's very easy for us from a business perspective to move from one disease to the next to the next because the underlying technology that's really, I think, essential to making all of this work um, is something that we have intellectual property rights around. We have a scientific knowledge and understanding about, and we're building a clinical knowledge about it so that we can start to add more um, potential diseases to our pipeline probably faster than anyone. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that, you know, as sort of the, the leader of the company, as kind of a company that's interested in improving as many lives as possible through this curative potential of gene therapy, um, it's it's having uh, fewer barriers to be able to move on to the next disease as quickly as possible to help create that sustaining business. Well, let's talk about the NAF technology or your platform technology. What is NAV? Yeah, so so NAV is uh, is an acronym uh, for uh, basically novel uh, viruses called adeno-associated viruses, um, and and these viruses are um, things that occur in nature that basically allow genes to be transferred into cells in people um, without any cause of disease, without and and without any significant um, responses, and that's that's unique because. You know, typically when I say the word virus, you know, we all immediately, our minds immediately go to the cold or the flu or things like, you know, HIV or worse. Um, but in fact, there are all sorts of viruses and, and, and viruses exist in, in all sorts of ways and do all sorts of things. And it just turns out that there's this class of viruses, these adeno-associated viruses that actually don't cause any known disease in people. Um, so in the case of the NAV technology, we take those viruses that are already baseline safe and non-infectious, don't cause disease. We take out what naturally would be the, the genome of the virus, and we replace it with that healthy copy of a gene that we want to get into cells. And so we borrow what's good about viruses, what viruses do um, in their own life cycle is they take their DNA, they put it into a cell, and they try to re replicate it. Um, we're going to take advantage of that. We're going to take advantage of it with very um, well-characterized viruses that are safe and get genes into cells efficiently. Um, and this is going to happen in every single program that we develop. What's unique about um, these viruses and the NAV technology platform is we have identified the absolute best AAV viruses that exist. Um, and the key benefits of them are they get more genes into cells that results in more expression of those genes into more protein and higher levels of protein with very, very limited, uh, if any, side effects in terms of safety. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about gene therapy, and, and this has historically been a problem for scientists and clinicians who have been focused on the concept, the hypothetical concept of gene therapy, but trying to reduce it to practice, to me, it's a, it's a very simple matrix of safe and effective. And for years, uh, you know, scientists and clinicians wrestled with things that uh, viruses and other things that were able to transfer genes into cells but weren't safe and trying to make them safer. And then they had a whole set of things that were actually safe 
but weren't actually that effective or efficient at getting genes into cells. I personally believe, uh, having uh, sort of identified this technology over 10 years ago um, in one lab that was basically the discoverer of it at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and we've sort of been a custodian of this technology now for many years and helped enable it into not only our own pipeline, but many more pipelines, this is the best possible implementation right now for gene therapy. It's, it's The NAV technology is among the technologies that is known to be safe and effective and one of the most efficient at transferring genes into cells. And, and that's why, you know, we're excited to get these types of acknowledgments from FDA for sort of support of development in these orphan diseases. But we've also seen clinical data emerge already against the backdrop of the NAV technology platform, and, and we're starting to see it work. You've entered into a number of licensing agreements with other developers of gene therapies. This has included partnerships with some gene therapy companies that, like Regenix Bio, are development stage companies. What's the partnering strategy, and what do you hope to achieve through this? Yeah, I mean, the partnering strategy is consistent with the overall mission of the company, which is to improve as many lives as possible with the curative potential of gene therapy. And so, um, you know, certainly I've already outlined that, you know, we're, we're focused on rapidly advancing our internal pipeline of programs, including things like the CLN2 program and the Hunter program. But we believe we can grow the potential through sub-licensing the technology, and that means basically enabling others to use it in disease areas where, you know, we don't have the scientific expertise or we may not have the capital or the human resources to take things forward. There, there are literally, Danny, probably hundreds, if not thousands of diseases that could benefit from the application of gene therapy and NAV technology. And we decided early on in the evolution of Regenix Bio that it was literally going to be impossible for us to take forward everything that could or should be taken forward to help uh, all possible patients and families with these different diseases. So we needed to partner. Early on, we found a lot of strong partners in other early stage companies and, um, you know, frankly, companies that were supported by academic translational research centers that were focused on gene therapy. Uh, but more recently, we've actually found significant partnership through large pharmaceutical companies. And today, um, you know, literally we have over 20 programs through partnership that are being advanced outside of Regenix Bio, but in partnership with Regenix Bio and access to NAV technology. Um, one of those treatments we think is going to be uh, basically the first product that's approved um, for a uh, rare central nervous system disorder, neuromuscular disorder, using gene therapy, uh, probably in 2019, um, that's being led by Novartis, which is a you know obviously a global pharmaceutical company. Yeah, that's right, the SMA Type One program. And um, you know th these are examples of I think what's what's starting to emerge in terms of the application of NAV technology is we're starting to see the the potential of some of the first approvals. But I'm really considering the next three to five years to be a major transition for gene therapy and for NAV technology where uh, many more treatments emerge beyond sort of first in human clinical demonstration uh, towards uh, approval and, and broader access. Ken Mills, CEO of Regenex Bio. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate talking to you.
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.